Gracious Father, thank you again for caring about us, caring about the organizations we work with, and desiring to make us uh, better leaders, better workers, better co-workers with you, above all. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our first section in this track, Leadership in Ministry, we talked about leader foundations. And what I'd like to do now is talk about boards and decisions. And I'm going to kind of pick up some of the conversations that we had earlier. And um, truth of the matter is, I don't know if this program is still on television. I'm out of the loop on things. But there used to be a program called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Have you heard of that program? No? Some of you have, some of you haven't. What was an interesting program? The idea what developed was that they would ask you questions. And if you answered the questions right, you would continue to win money. What was really intriguing was you could call to a friend if you needed help on some of the questions, or you could also ask the audience. Now, what's intriguing here is that if you, in the United States, you ask the audience for the answer to the question, the audience was right over 90% of the time. So you know, they would get an aggregate of what the answer was, and the answer was right over 90% of the time. So that's really amazing. But it points out to me the power of teams, the power of teams. And a good leader realizes the value of a good team. And in our previous session, we were talking a little bit about <clears throat> how to develop that good team, what are some of the aspects about the team, work, etc. Now, let me tell you something else. If you played this game in France, the answer was wrong the majority of the time. In the audience? Yes. And some of the answers were like patently obvious. So it was really hard to think that the audience didn't know the answer. But researchers were concluding that the audience intentionally misled the, the contestant. Now, that's a whole interesting dynamic into French society, which you could study later. But in the United States, at least, if you had a good team, it would work well. Um, They do have a spirit of camaraderie. Uh, some of the researchers thought that the French felt the person should know the answer. And if they were dumb enough not to know the answer, they weren't going to help them. So uh, it's a little interesting aspect there. Earlier as well, we talked about the value of being able to confront a leader. We had a couple of examples where perhaps you're in a constituency meeting, how difficult it is to say something or if you're in a board meeting, or you're in the presence of a very strong leader. Um, we talked about Elder Frizee and the, um, the difficulties of sometimes going against an individual like that who has a long history and is well-respected, almost venerated. Um, and so I want to talk about an illustration here, an example that highlights the importance of a leader creating a comfortable atmosphere in which people can raise objections. So I want to say, in, um, back in the 1980s, I think it was, there was a flight, KLM flight 4805. 
And this flight was headed to um, Tenerife, a little island in the Pacific, and yet he got um, diverted, excuse me. He was supposed to land in Los Palmos in the Canary Islands, but he was diverted to Tenerife. The reason was on Los Palmos in the Canary Islands, there was some kind of like a terrorist activity. And so the island shut down. They didn't want the plane to go there. And so the plane landed at Tenerife. Now, Tenerife was a much smaller island and wasn't really equipped for these jumbo jets to land there. It wasn't just this KLM flight that landed there. There was a Pan Am flight. And several other flights landed there as well. And so everybody's crowded. First of all, there's no lodging for the passengers. There's really no room in the airport. The runways really aren't equipped for these larger airplanes. It was a very uncomfortable situation. To make matters worse, a fog settled in on the island. And the um, head of the, or the pilot rather, of the KLM flight, a gentleman by the name of Jacob Van Zenten, was the head pilot of the KLM flight. Van Zenten was the individual who was responsible for all of KLM's safety instruction. He was like their top safe pilot. He had written a manual on safety. He instructed all the other pilots on safety. He was an expert on safety. He's there, his co-pilot are there. Fog descends, and they're sitting there. They're waiting, they're waiting, and they're waiting. And hours pass by. He knows that they only have a certain time window with which they can take off, or they have to get off the airplane. And if they get off the airplane, then all these people are stranded on this island, because there's no other replacement crew. And so he's thinking in his mind, what are we going to do? We need to get off this island. Why did they have to get out of the plane? Because they can only be on active duty for a certain length of time. And they were approaching the limit of time they could be in the plane. Pilots, just like truckers, have only a certain limit where they could be on active duty. Emergencies don't. Emergencies don't, no. So, and he knows this, and so he's, he's worried about this. And so he gets the idea, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get out of our queue, get out of the line, and we're going to go refuel. That'll save us time when he gets to Tenerife, and then he can maybe make it back to Amsterdam, which was his ultimate goal. So he gets out of queue and starts fueling his, his airplane, the KLM airplane. And as he does, you know, the fog begins to lift. Everything gets clear. And so now everybody's like, OK, let's, we need to get going. So now he's you know, lost his place in line. He gets back in line. And he's got this whole anxiety. Fog comes back down on the island. And he is on the runway. And he's communicating to the tower. Um, we are ready to take off. And the tower responded in a certain way. And he says, we're ready for takeoff. Tower responded. And then his co-pilot says, I don't think we have clearance for takeoff. And he ignored the co-pilot. And he made another communication to the tower. And um, the co-pilot again said, I don't believe we have clearance for takeoff. And he says, we are taking off. He starts barreling down the runway. And as he's barreling down the runway, there's a Pan Am flight, which is crossing the runway, trying to get out of the way. And he hit the Pan Am flight. It was the worst aviation disaster. 485 people died. As inspectors went back to try to look at this disaster, here you have the best, safest pilot in KLM, 
wrote the book, gave instruction, but he made a tragic mistake. What was the issue? You could say, well, you know, he, he really wanted to get the people to Tenerife. He wanted to turn around. He didn't want to inconvenience people. There were all sorts of these pressures on him. But the biggest single flaw that was discovered was the inability of the co-pilot to say, we are not taking off. In those days, the working relationship between the pilot and co-pilot was much more hierarchical than it is today. They've actually changed the laws based on this disaster where co-pilots have more authority than they did in, in those days. You could hear the co-pilot timidly saying, I don't think we have clearance. I don't think we have clearance. I don't think we have clearance. Rather than saying, we don't have clearance. We shouldn't do this. And it was this dynamic that brought about this disaster. Now, the lesson clearly is leaders need to create and foster an environment in which people are not afraid to say to them, I think this is wrong, and say it in such a way that they listen. In our earlier presentation, I told you about a situation in which um, there was a leader who needed to be removed, and I had invested a lot of personal energy, time, and friendship into this leader. And I was blinded to the fact that he needed to be removed. I hoped that we could work out the situation where he could stay. After it happened, I talked to some of the other board members, who are also friends of mine. And I said to them, now this is in a different country, so there's all sorts of cultural dynamics. And I said to them, why didn't you tell me? And they said, well, we tried to tell you. And then they told me when they tried to tell me. And remember, we said this. And remember, we said this. And remember, we said this. And I was like, you're right. I wasn't listening. And then I went to them and I said, look, the next time you see me doing that, you need to look me in the face and say, you are not listening. Now, they felt I wasn't listening at that time. But because I'm the president of OCI, and I'm the foreigner, uh, and I was their director in the past, lots of dynamics, it was very hard for them to say, you're not listening. And so I opened the door for them. Look, this is what you need to do with me. Just take me aside. Pastor, you're not listening. So very important for us. Um, how do we create this thing? Yes. Yes, he that has an ear, let him hear. We don't listen very well, because we think we know every all. We don't. So here's an interesting quotation. I'm sorry, I don't remember who wrote this. But it says this, pluralistic ignorance, pluralistic, that means ignorance in the group, applied to an incipient crisis, an immediate crisis, means I am puzzled by what is going on, but I assume no one else is especially because they have more experience, more seniority, and higher rank. In other words, if I'm on a board, if I'm with a group of people, I'm in a committee, I'm working with people, and people have more experience, are older, have a higher rank than I, I could be puzzled by what's going on, but I think nobody else is. You know what the truth is? If you're puzzled by it, most people are going to be puzzled by it, or someone else is going to be puzzled by it. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a meeting with different people, and somebody will throw out an acronym, you know. Uh, 
And I'm like, excuse me, what's that mean? Uh, real estate negotiations or different businesses. People talk in lingo and they think you all understand. And if you don't understand, you're going to make a bad decision. So just raising that question. What, what does that mean? Okay. Um, why does this circumstance exist in which there is um, uh, a poor opportunity for people to communicate? Well, here's a few things. We, let's talk about them. Fear of marginalization. I think we talked about this earlier. I'm afraid that if I raise an issue, if I disagree with something that the leader is pushing, if I disagree with the leader of the institution, Elder Frizee, in the example we talked about earlier today, then there's the fear of marginalization, that I'm going to be marginalized. People are going to put me in a particular box, and I don't want my reputation to be damaged that way. Sometimes leaders themselves lack open communication skills, that they are inhibitory. They really don't look for good ways to communicate. Sometimes there are what we call gatekeepers. Gatekeepers are secretaries. Gatekeepers are people that filter bad news. Maybe gatekeepers are the accountant that doesn't want the financial situation to really look as bad as it should to the, you know, the, the, the chairman of the board or to the president. And sometimes gatekeepers inhibit information from getting to the leader. Uh, there's a board that I sit on that just this past summer had a board meeting and the president was not re-elected. president was not re-elected. And the chairman, my understanding is that the chairman had a little bit of a sense of the feeling there on the team. But the chairman didn't communicate to the president for whatever reason. So he was, in a sense, acting as a gatekeeper to try to maybe shield the president's feelings, but it really ended up in a surprise twist of things. Sometimes leaders have a lack of intuition. They're not really in tune. They don't have a good sense. Um, they, they're not emotionally intelligent, let me use that expression, where they're not really aware of what the feeling is among the organization. And sometimes leaders just have a general lack of experience. And because of these things, leaders don't foster a process by which the team is able to give good input to the leader. It's vital for that to happen. And one of the most important places that should happen is with the board. And so this is important. I'm going to talk about some board governance issues and hopefully bring out some important things that can help us not just in boards, but in leadership in general. So um, let's think of three different aspects that board members have and how they should exercise those. First of all, there's the governance hat. And when I use the illustration of a hat, I'm, I mean the responsibility. So every board member has a governance responsibility. What does that mean? Board members are responsible for guiding the direction of the organization. So for example, let's use Wildwood. I'm the, uh, cur currently anyway, I am the chairman of the Wildwood board. So I have certain governance responsibilities as chairman of the Wildwood board. Uh, I chair the board meeting. I work with Juan to make sure the agenda is there. We talk about how the constituency is going to meet. 
um, I have certain governance responsibilities that exist while the board meeting is in session. But I also have certain volunteer responsibilities, or I have my volunteer hat. Well, what's that? Well, Wildwood is having its 75th anniversary, and they asked me to come teach a class on leadership. I'm a volunteer. So here I am, not as chairman of the board, but I'm here as a volunteer teaching this class. Or if they want me to come do something, sit in on a meeting or paint something, I could be here as a volunteer. Or also, I can be an implementer. What does that mean? The board could assign something to me. Um, for example, uh, another board that I sit on, the Riverside Board, they've given me a task to do before their next board meeting. They have assigned that to me. Now I need to implement it. That's not governance. That's not volunteering. That's implementation. It's important for organizations and board members to realize these three different areas. Why? If I was, if, let's change that expression, since I am the board chairman of Wildwood, and as board chair, I have certain governance responsibilities. If I were to call the president of Wildwood and say, hey, look, I'm the board chair, and I want you to arrange your 75th weekend this way, that would be an inappropriate use of my governing responsibilities. Why would it be inappropriate? Because the board's not in session. I'm a chairman of a board. I function there to guide the board. But when the board meeting's over, my authority as board chair is gone. Now, I may call Vaughn. I can give counsel to Vaughn. I can discuss things with him. I could give him advice. But I have no authority to say, hey, I'm the board chair. This is what you should do. That's not the way governance in a nonprofit works. It may be governance in certain corporations work, but not in a nonprofit. And this is, this is important. Sometimes board members will call. So someone did this the other day. They called um, my treasurer, they, my accountant, rather. They wanted her to do something. She wasn't able to help them. This person wrote kind of a rebuking letter to my accountant. He's a board member. What's that? 11.15. Sorry. Um, thank you. So we go to 11.15. Um, this board member wrote a letter to one of my staff, my accountant, rebuking my accountant for something she didn't do for him. Okay? He felt, hey, I'm a board member. I wanted this done. You didn't do it. I wrote to him. He's a friend of mine. He's on the board. I wrote to him and I said, hey, that's out of line. You have a problem with my accountant, you talk to me. You don't talk to my accountant because his role, his authority as a board member is only when the board is in session. That's important for us in governance. We'll talk more about that. So what are some of the governance functions of a board? These are really important. Okay, let's look at them. First of all, it's the board that is to determine the mission and values of the organization. Many of our boards, many of our boards in supporting ministry, 
are weak in this area. Why are they weak in this area? Because most of our organizations in supporting ministries have started with a very strong entrepreneurial visionary leader. Okay? And that entrepreneurial visionary leader said, this is what I'm going to do. Who's going to help me? And he pulls together a couple of friends and they start their board and then they begin to move, which is the way the organization starts. However, as the organization matures, it needs to change its strategy. If it doesn't, then the, the institution, the ministry, is in danger of dying if there's no good secession. Okay? Now, so it's important for us to think this through, determining both the mission and values of the organization. Sometimes it's, it's as easy as clarifying the mission and values that, that exist because of the work of the previous founder, but it's important for us. Another governance function, and this is an area that most of our ministries don't have, and I would say, I would say, Eve, not just OCI kind of supporting ministries, but I would say parachurch organizations. You know, it would be interesting to find out um, how 3ABN or Amazing Facts, or it is written, if they've gone through, if they've thought through this, what are the limitations that the director or president can do? Presidential limitations. Now, you may say, well, what does that mean? In every organization, the board is responsible for keeping the vision and mission of the board going forward. Um, but it's also important that the organization is comfortable with the role that the president is playing. What do I mean by that? Several years ago at OCI, we were talking about presidential limitations, and I asked our board, how much money do you think the president of this organization should be able to spend without getting board approval? Okay, well, how much money should the president of Wildwood be able to spend without board approval? What would you say? No, depends on the board. Depends on the board? Well, what, what would we be comfortable with? What would you be comfortable with, the president? Uh, as a board member? Yeah. Not much. Five hundred dollars? Ten thousand? You also have your executive committee. Yeah, no. President by himself can spend it. Oh really? Yeah. Well, this is my scenario. Just follow I my scenario for a little bit. It, it would depend. You've got a lot of. Uh, what, what do you mean it depends? No, this is discretionary. Okay, totally discretionary. Yeah, two thousand dollars. Two thousand dollars discretionary. He's got to have. He's got to have an agenda first, and he's got to have uh, a budget for for items. Okay. In those items, he's got, you know, $1,000 might be okay to go ahead and approve. Okay, so I got 2000 I got 1000 You're saying that if the president wants to spend this amount of money, he's got to ask the board? No, not ask the board. Not ask, oh. How much money can the president spend without asking, asking the board? The board. For but what? Even Just if, a second. If he wants to spend a million dollars, okay, then he needs So you would be, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to say at least like... That was my question. Look, hold on, okay. hold on. My question to the OCI board, we were talking about presidential limitations, and the board was like, why do we have to do this? And I asked the board the same question I just asked you, and I got the same answers. I got this total like, well, what do you mean? What it depends, what it is. So some of us may feel it's okay to spend 1,000, some of us may feel it's okay to spend 2,000. Bill, what were you gonna say? In a church, the director of each different phase of the ministry has a certain amount, like $50 or something, 
and then they can turn the receipt in later. And when we would talk about this, I'd say to the board, well, you know, if I spend $500, which violates that totally, I will pay for it myself if the board doesn't approve it at another meeting. Now, that's not good governance, but sometimes you get in a situation. But, okay. But it's personal responsibility if I don't have board approval for anything more than the amount that anybody else would spend in their department. So, but in that situation, the church board already said $50 is the limit. And you're saying, hey, if I go over the limit, I'll reimburse it if you don't approve it. But there's a limit. Now, most organizations do not think about what the president should be able to spend. In our board, as we talked about it, there was this big variety. Well, I think he should spend 20000 I think he should be able to spend 30000 I think he should be able to spend 2000 The point was, let's make a decision. Let's write down a policy that says how much the president can spend. And then it's clear, and we've decided. Let's say, can the president buy property or not buy property? Now, I'm all relating this all to OCI. And so we went through a process of thinking through what were the areas that we felt the president was comfortable to work within. And you can make them as liberal or as tight as you want, as long as the board is comfortable. And we had a very big conversation. Again, the scope was literally between $1,000 and $25,000. You know, the board felt comfortable. And so I all we- trusted an individual man, probably. Right, but the point here is, it's true, they did trust an individual. The point is that the board needs to think through what I'm going, what parameters this president has to work in. If the board doesn't do that, for example, if the board doesn't specify, you as the president cannot spend more than X, whatever X is, or if the church board doesn't specify that the pastor may not spend more than X, if the pastor spends more than X, no one has any right to be upset because they never clarified it. The board doesn't have any right to, to be upset because they never clarified it. They could feel upset, but they don't have anything that they could argue back well, we asked you not to do that. This, this is, is important. Procedure. Well, this really isn't yes. parliamentary procedure. No, parliamentary procedure, procedure, excuse me. Parliamentary procedure organizes, gives you guidance toward organizing the meeting. Oh. This is very different. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but it's, this is a very important governance function of a board to say, as this board, we are comfortable allowing our chief officer this latitude in doing what they're doing. It's an important function. It's very, very rarely used. Another governance function of a board is to monitor results. Now, the only way you can monitor results if you, is if you have something to monitor it against. And so the board needs to state what it's going to measure results against. Um, what are the goals? What are the aims? What are the outcomes the board wants the president to accomplish? Of course, another governance function is selecting the president, and another governance function is self-evaluating, another major area where our boards don't do well. We do not self-evaluate. These are major concerns that I have as president of OCI, is to help organizations think through their governance structures 
and begin to work, okay, what areas can we improve? How do we self-evaluate our board? Does our board have good governance policy in place? Do we outlay certain results for the president? What targets are we looking for? So these are some important governance functions. Now, let's just deal with a bunch of questions in relation to boards. One question that I often get is, how big should a board be? How large should the board be? And the answer for that is, of course, it depends. Um, Bill, would you know how big the It Is Written board is? Offhand? No. Um, I have no idea either. The OCI board, it, we're an international organization. We have 120 ministries in 44 different countries. We have 20 people on our board. That's a large board. It's a very large board. At times, it's cumbersome. Uh, Wildwood has a, in, <clears throat> let's see here, I'm chairman of the Wildwood board, but I think the Wildwood board is too large. We have 15, 18 people on there, but it's large for just one organization. I think if you have one organization ministry, somewhere between seven to nine, 12, you know, it really depends on your size of your organization, but oftentimes smaller makes things more efficient. Um, how often should boards meet? Well, we try to meet twice a year, and I would say that's, that's a good number for boards. Some boards delegate a lot of their authority to their executive committee, and they meet once a year, and then their uh, executive committee carries on things through the year. But still, a board should meet at least once a year. I would say twice a year is a good, good time. Sometimes that's difficult when you have board members who are coming in from far, but maybe you need to evaluate your board and think through who are some of the members. And here's a great question. Who should be a board member? If we go back to our original founder illustration where you get a founder, he's got an idea, you got a Bill Dull who wants to start a project in India and he gathers a few friends, okay, we're gonna start this board and we're gonna move forward. In the very beginning, a lot of thought isn't put into who comprises the board, but it's important for organizations, as organizations grow, again, to self-evaluate. And as part of the self-evaluation process in board governance is to think through who's on my board, what are the skill sets that I don't have on my board, and what skill sets can be added in. So um, is my board all ministry people? And I don't have any business people. Maybe I need some business people. Maybe I need a CPA on my board. Um, if I'm a health institution. Okay, good question. Should the boards have people necessarily on the organization? So here's a conversation that's guaranteed to generate interest. Many boards don't have anybody from the organization on it. And, and that's a question. Is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? So the most of the supporting ministries boards are weighted heavily to involve local staff on the board. Most of the supporting ministry boards are weighted heavily that way by intention from the founders. And the reason was, I think, that those founders 
realized that people were working in a sacrificial manner, financially sacrificial manner, and really felt ownership, and so wanted to have a voice in the ownership of the organization. Almost every supporting ministry board I know of functions that, well, that way. Is that always the best? I would argue, no, it's not always the best. Why not? Because if I'm, for example, um, if I'm president of organization X and, and person, you know, Fred is, works on my campus, but Fred's also a board member, and I have to confront Fred for how he's acting, then when we have a board meeting, the human nature part of Fred is like, okay, this is my opportunity to get back. You know, the president's too hard. He's too this, he's too demanding, or he doesn't do this, or he doesn't do that. And oftentimes, you can create a very untenable circumstance where in one hand, the president is responsible for driving the organization and has certain, um, certain responsibilities equated with being a boss, let's put it that way. And then on the other hand, he's under the scrutiny of those people he's supervising. It could create a very awkward thing. And I could give you a list of organizations that have had difficulty because of that very thing. Were you a part of this when Vital was here? No. No, I wasn't. Um, yes, sure. Are you going to address board culture? And my question to that would be, how do you break up board culture if it's a culture that you know, he's so we're going to talk about change this afternoon, okay. and that might fit in there. But we can talk a little bit about it now. Again, the question was, are we going to talk about changing board culture? And later we'll talk about change. But um, changing a board thinking is a process. Uh, so for example, let's just say, for example, we decided that no longer would we have as many workers on the Wildwood Board as we currently do. How many workers are on the Wildwood Board, do you know? There's you, there's James, uh, is your, it's like five, six, seven, eight, and the board total is? Oh, it is 24, it's larger than I thought. So you got a third of the board more is more than a third are people that work here. How many the difficulty. Of board, how many of those that are not work here are past workers? Yes. <laughs> so, yes. so you have a number of people who were past workers. You have Chuck, um, Grievous's Sherman. No, she's still a worker. Uh, I was talking about Leach. Oh, is he on no, the board? No, no. He's not on the board. Chuck Cleveland. So that's hard to say, but you probably have, if you count current workers and part workers, you almost are 50% of your board are, yeah, are, have been staff. So that just creates a certain dynamic that can be helpful and can be unhealthy. Um, other boards that I know, the only, only local person on the board is the president. Some boards I know the president's not even on the board. And the president comes in, the staff comes in, they give a report, they leave, the board discusses issues, 
and the board moves forward. Um, certainly, you'll always want to have communication with your local people. I have a different situation, a different board, um, another part of the country, and the staff wants to get like rid of the board and they take over. Now, the board members have been board members, you know, some of them for 20 years, and it's like, the staff has been there for like two years. It's like, hey guys, sorry, we appreciate that you're working here, but you're not the long-term owners of this organization. That's an important point. Your board is your long-term, your board, your constituency is your really long-term owner of the organization. That's why it's very important that you think carefully through who is a board member. The board runs the place. The board sets the vision. The board sets the, this is where we want to go. And then the board chooses the president. This is what we want you to do in the big scheme of things. Go do it. Um, and then follows through with that. Yes? Now, the other scenario, you said that a man will get a vision and then he'll want to move forward with the team and then he'll select a board. So that's kind of... Yeah, so, the, so that's why a lot of the supporting ministries boards are the way they are. Is like, okay, let's go start this organization and we're all here together and... You know, we're all board members, and we want the people that are sacrificing to be part of it, and so they, by bylaws or something, have a role on the board. That works in certain circumstances. It's not flawless, and it can create other problems. And other organizations have said, you know, there's a much better governance system, usually when you're past your founder. You know, your founder's got a vision, and your founder's moving things forward. Um, but um, once the founder leaves the scene, you need to ensure that the original vision is carried on. Uh, and I would say this is an area in which supporting ministries have been weak is in having strong boards. We've usually depended very much on individuals and we've created some problems for ourselves. So who should be a board member? You really want to think this through. Should we really have so many staff on the board? Maybe we should limit it. You know, maybe we should at least have the conversation without being threatened by the conversation. Um, we should want people on our board that bring a variety to us, that see things a little differently. Now, again, you want to be careful because you never know how a vote could go, but um, you do want people that have different expertise on a board. So. There was a time where conference input on, on the board is where it's Oh, conference input on supporting ministries boards? You know, some ministries have had a conference representative. The difficulty that I found with that, anyway, is that if you put someone on because of their position, let's say you, you invite the president of the Georgia Conflict Conference to be a board member, well, Ed Wright may have a very good working relationship with supporting ministries. He does. But the next president may not. And if you put somebody on simply by virtue of their position, then it becomes a little uncomfortable. So, yes, another question? I'd like in the case of our situation here, like we have a constituency, and that constituency votes for the board. How is, is that common in other places? I'm not aware of that. Okay, good question. Well, how does a constituency work in relation to boards? So, at, as you said, at Wildwood, there's a constituency model, which is patterned after the church's model. So in our local churches across the United States, we have a constituency-based function. We have a, um, 
which is a nominating committee in our local churches. And then we have a vote of the church in business session. The whole church body votes who's going to be the officers. We're going to have in Georgia Cumberland Conference next year the constituency meeting where each church sends a representative. Those are constituent members. They vote the board. Supporting ministries have done something similar where they create a constituency. That constituency chooses the board. Constituency has a lot of power in choosing board members. Uh, that's really its big role. If we don't like what's going on, kick the board members out and get somebody we like in there. That's their main function. Other boards follow a self-electing model. So for example, the OCI board does not have a constituency. When it was founded, the founders chose not to do that. Although they were familiar with the Wildwood model, they chose we're just going to be self-electing. So the original board was chosen. It was the board members were divided into clusters. Um, and each cluster had a term of one, two, and three years. So that after one year, a third of them, their term expired, and then they were elected for three years. The board itself. The board is self-electing. So the board members sit among themselves and think, who do we want? So the board elects itself. So you don't have a constituency. You have uh, just the board. That's another discussion. Which model is best? Well, that depends. If you have a intelligent constituency, if you have an informed, intelligent, active constituency, there's a safety there in the constituency. Uh, if your constituency is just going to kind of go along, or there's not an openness in the constituency for people to ask questions or really push back, then it can be an awkward circumstance. Um, so, you know, I would say that neither one of them has a divine mandate to them. They both have different strengths and weaknesses. They both exist. Wow. Okay, what's the role of the board chair? Roll the board chair is to make sure the president does everything as quickly as he says. No, that's not true. The role of the board chair is to facilitate the board meeting to ensure that to help create with the president that atmosphere on the board in which there is good, open, and engaged dialogue. This is really important. The board chair with the president need to intentionally be thinking, how do we help this board reach its potential by engaging in good constructive conflict? When I say constructive conflict, I'm talking about conflict that focuses on issues. That's not personal. It's not antagonistic. We could disagree with one another. We could disagree with one another strongly. But at the end of the day, we're still friends, and we've moved on. So the board chair uh, helps with the president, assures that the agenda is set. And then the board chair, largely, ensures the smooth running of the meeting. Um, the board chair would be in instrumental in helping the board uh, continue with its, its responsibilities, as we outlined in the governance responsibilities. It's not the board chair's responsibility to micromanage the president. It's not the board chair's responsibility to go over the president and interfere in the organization. Okay. Um, let's see. 
let's do this very quickly if we can. We only have a couple minutes left. So let's talk about different governance models. When a board first starts, when an institution first starts, when you have a founder, you usually have an advisory model. That's usually where, um, I would assume in Bolivia, this is probably a bit the way the culture of the current board there, it's, it's really advisory. You know, the founder's there and he's moving forward and the board gives advice, but it's much more of an advisory model. This works in the beginning of an organization. Certainly, it has liabilities as the organization grows. I can think of an organization that's not too far from here that's closed down, and it never went beyond the advisory stage. And because of that, the founder, I would argue, contributed to the death of the organization because of the founder's inability to receive counsel and the board's inability to deal with the founder because the the relationship was much more advisory. So that's a, that's a model, and it works in the beginning, but it's probably not the best long-term model. Another model is the management model of a board, and that is when the board is too engrossed in details. They want to manage the finances. They want to manage the operations. Now, there are times when a board needs to step in to do that. For example, there's an organization that's going through a crisis right now, I'm on that board, and as we're working with that organization, the board has stepped in more closely into the management of things than it normally would. But that's because there's a crisis. And so we're giving more direction on what they can spend and how much they can spend than we normally would. So that's a management model. Then there is what I would recommend for most boards, and that is a policy governance model. And that is a board which takes a, a very high view of its responsibilities. It keeps the mission and vision, the values in place. But then it defines certain um, governance issues, presidential limitations like we talked about earlier. It describes how the board is going to make its decisions. And it sets out these policies. And then it lets the organization run through the policies. And these policies describe both the president's limitations and also describe how the board itself will operate. Let me clarify that. So for OCI, we put together this thing, this kind of a model of governance. And in our policy statement for how the board operates, it says, this is a paraphrase, but it says something like, this board is not, gonna, is not going to micromanage the decisions of the organization. So whenever somebody on the board moves from governance to micromanaging, somebody else on the board says, that's really not our responsibility. Let me give you an example. There is an organization um, on the West Coast that was going through a little bit of turmoil in their staffing. One key staff member was leaving. And we were talking, this particular staff member was responsible for a certain part of that organization. We were on the board and we were talking, how is the team going to manage that particular area? And we were like 10, 25 minutes, people are talking, oh, I'm concerned about this, and they're throwing all these ideas in there. And then finally, one board member just said, excuse me, I don't think this is our responsibility. We're micromanaging. And all of a sudden, all the other board members were, oh, you're right, 
That's not a responsibility. Drop it. Let the board, let the president sort it out with his team. Because that board has a culture of good governance, even though it drifted away from it, it was very easy to get it back. It really was one question from one board member and brought everybody back to, okay, that's not our issue. Before that, there was a lot of feelings. And so policy governance helps set a tone for an organization. Okay, we need to draw to a close. Um, let me just outline this. Here's a hierarchy of board policies, and then we'll close. First of all, there's governmental laws. Those are the highest thing that guards the organization. Then there's the articles of incorporation. That's what we would write to say how we're going to do business. Then there are the bylaws. Those are, are more changeable. These are, we have no way of changing the government laws. It's harder to change your articles. Your bylaws are easier to change. Your board policies are even easier to change, and then you might have president and office policies, how the president chooses to run. This is a hierarchy. This is a scale. Everything needs to be in harmony, of course, with the governmental laws. We're nonprofits. We have certain obligations to the government. But these board policies here, underneath the bylaws, or a lower level than the bylaws, can be changed by the board at any time. That their statements as to how the board wants to operate. They're an agreement, rather, as to how the board chooses to operate. And then if the board has an issue, the board could think, hey, maybe we need a new policy to address this issue, and then create a policy. Okay, let's just draw to a close. Boards are a real blessing. Uh, they're a, they could contribute largely to a strength of an organization, but they are an aspect of leadership that need attention and need work. Okay, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, again, thank you for your care. Thank you for your love. And help us, Lord, to be open to you. Help us to know where we are in our own leadership, spiritual growth journeys, that we might follow you more closely. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.